Thank you, David. Okay, I might not have this. Yep, it is on. Okay, thanks. All right, uh, good morning again. Turn to First uh, Peter chapter 3, that's where we're going to be. We're going to look at that passage that David just read. That is the whole passage, but it is deep and confusing, and so we've got our work cut out for us. A uh, little review before we get there, though, to be able to kind of set the context for you. Uh, in this letter that Peter writes, uh, the very first thing he does right out of the gate is he tells us about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He says that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope and into an inheritance. And, and as a result, we are now new creatures and Christ is living in us. The resurrected Christ is in us. And that is good news for us. But he also explains that as a result, our lives now have both privilege and assignment. Our lives now have both status and then a call to service or ministry. So our privilege and our status is that we are a chosen people. We are a holy nation and we are a royal priesthood. And that sounds really good and it is really good and we should celebrate that. But as a result of that status, of that position, we also have an assignment for service and ministry, and that is to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And a big part of offering spiritual sacrifices, it's not the total part, but a big part of it, would be that we are to live our lives in subjection to the various authorities that we have around us in this world, that, that um, as he says in chapter 2, verse 12, we are to conduct ourselves uh, in an honorable way to, towards everyone, but even and especially towards those who don't believe the things that we believe, which means that as we go out into the world and encounter people who aren't in the church and don't have the same faith that we have, uh, we are to treat them respectfully and with honor, and we are to submit to their authority in our lives. And so he calls us, for instance, to submit to the governing authorities and to various marketplace uh, authorities or workplace authorities. And then he calls us to submit to the authority of the family as well. And we talked for two weeks about that. And I know that for some of you, many of you in this church, we have a lot of single people in this church, you're kind of wondering, well, what does that, what does that mean to me? Uh, I, I'm not married and I don't even necessarily have a, 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 a DNA type family. Well, you still have a family here in the church. And, and so you would submit yourself as well to that. The idea is that we're going to live our lives in humility and in subjection to others who have a authority in our lives. And it's also helpful for those of you who are single to remember that 80 to 90% of you, statistics tell us, 80 to 90% of you will eventually be married, even if you're not married now or you'll be married again. And so might as well prepare for that eventuality. And then we looked at two paragraphs, five verses each. The first paragraph sort of put a bow on the first part of this letter uh, from First Peter, and he reminded us once again, Peter likes to circle back to things. Paul writes very, in a very linear fashion. Peter tends to write in these circles where he keeps coming back to themes that you think he's already covered, and he comes back once more in that paragraph that, that, we, that first paragraph we looked at last week to remind us how we're to treat each other in the church. And that in the church, we are to be unified, we're, have, we're to have uh, the same mind about things, even in our diversity and even in our differences of opinions, we are to be unified in the gospel, that we are to have biblical sympathy for each other. And if you were here last week, we talked about that uh, in terms of what is known as interpathy, that it's not just that we feel sorry for somebody when they go through something bad, but but rather we are seeking to live in each other's experiences. We are, we are actually in each other's messes as, as part of the church. So that would be biblical sympathy. We're also to live with each other in love. That would be affectionate love and unconditional love. And as a result of that, we're to treat each other with tenderness and also uh, interact with each other in a spirit of humility. And then he transitions into that last paragraph we looked at last week, which deals with what some people would say is probably, other than the gospel, the main theme in the, in the letter uh, of 1 Peter, which is that as Christians, we are going to suffer. Uh, and, and so we started that last week, this idea of suffering, and we're going to spend the next three or four weeks leaning into that topic because that's what Peter now continues to come back and talk about that. And so we're going to look at it from a variety of angles. 
And last week we ended with verse 17. And in order to really understand the context of this next paragraph, we have to start with verse 17. So let me read verses 17 and 18 for you to see how they transition into each other. So verse 17, Peter writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, where we can get hung up with the biblical text is that when Peter wrote this, there were no uh, sentence division, verse divisions, and paragraph divisions. And where we can get hung up is that there's a, an end of a sentence, an end of a verse, and an end of a paragraph at 17, and then it starts a new one at 18. But really what's happening is Peter is just continuing his thought in these next five verses, verses 18 through 22. And so 17 is desperately connected to verse 18. You're going to suffer for doing good just as Christ suffered for doing good. And so we need, to, we need to approach our lives in Christ and this text with that understanding. Uh, I used to be part of a church that every so often would do a sermon on questions. And uh, originally we called it Questions I Have for God. And, and what we would do is we would announce this several weeks before we'd do it. And then we'd collect questions from the congregation, and then we'd figure out which ones we could answer in the time that we had to answer, and, and we would actually do a sermon on that. I was always troubled by the title, Questions I Have for God, because those of us answering the questions were not God, and uh, we thought that was a little bit presumptuous. And so uh, I was nervous about that, and we finally got rid of that moniker. But one of the things that I remember about this process, we do it maybe every year. One of the things I remember is before the first time we ever do, did it, I knew for a fact that the most common question we would get, more than any other question, and in fact, I was correct about this, every time we did it, we would get at least 50%, sometimes 55 or 60% of the questions would be this one question, and we'd get hundreds of these questions, and then all of the other questions combined didn't even equal the total of this one question, and here's the question or some variation of it. If God is such a loving God, why is there suffering in the world? And, and all that did for me was, was help me lean into what I believe I have observed for decades now, and that is this. We are obsessed with the issue of suffering and how unfair we think suffering is. And the prevailing attitude on suffering always tries to include blame uh, the idea of blaming suffering on someone or something else other than us, even if we're the ones that cause the suffering in our lives. And included in this attitude that we had towards uh, suffering was this sort of ethereal expectation and anticipation that someone or something somewhere at some time would alleviate all suffering from the human condition, whether it was, uh, whether it was a government or some sort of a manifesto like the Constitution. If we could just interpret the Constitution correctly, we could eliminate all suffering from everybody's lives in the whole world. It would be magnificent. Or maybe even God himself was going to finally figure out how to eliminate all suffering, and, and that even the, the idea of eliminating suffering has become sort of a, a civil right that we expect to be bestowed on us, that we deserve not to suffer even if we're the ones causing the suffering. Now, what is interesting about that is that we have to hold in tension with that, the fact that most of us do recognize and acknowledge that some people will suffer and that they kind of deserve it. You know, other people. And the reason they deserve it is because they're guilty of something. Usually, some offense committed against us. Now, come on, you know this is true. I know this is hard for you to deal with in reality, out here in the open, in front of everybody. But we're in church, we can do this, we're with our family, okay? But we know this is true. Here you go, just think of all of your exes and how you feel about them. Your ex-lover, your ex-boss, your ex-employee, your ex-partner, your ex-neighbor, your ex-roommate, your ex-friend, your ex-service service provider, Steve Nash, your ex-point guard. I mean, think about that. Now, keep hanging with me on this. The reality is that in order for a person to be someone who would never experience suffering, you would need at least one of the following two things to be true. And the problem is, is that neither one of these things is true for anybody, anywhere, neither one. 
What are they? Well, number one, you would actually have to be totally guilt-free. You'd have to be someone who has never committed an offense or a sin at any time, anywhere, against anyone or anything. You would have to be absolutely perfect. That would be one condition that would possibly put you in a, in a place where you would never have to suffer. The second one is this. You would have to have the power to stop all suffering in your life at any moment that, that it might threaten your life. Now, like I said, there's nobody in this room or outside of this room who possesses either one of these characteristics, let alone both. But there is one person who actually had both of those characteristics, both of those things going on in his life. And guess what? He suffered way more than anyone else ever has. He, he suffered the most, and that was Jesus. First of all, he was totally guilt-free. He had no sin in his life whatsoever. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're sold in, told in Hebrews 4.15. We're told in, in really the entire chapter of, of Isaiah 53 that, that Jesus was sinless. He was completely guiltless. He was perfect. He was, he was the unblemished sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the only person who ever lived who did not deserve to suffer and then second, Jesus also had the power to stop his suffering at any time he wanted. He could have stopped this whole cross thing if he wanted to because he's God. He had the power to do that. I mean, he's the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. He's the guy that calmed the storm. He's the guy that fed more than 4,000 people with nothing more than a combo meal from a little boy that he got at Long John Silver's. He's the guy that caused the blind man to see. He's the guy that, that told the paralytic to get up and walk and healed him. The guy with the withered hand, he healed him as well. So, so Jesus was not only free of all the guilt that there is, but he was also the one that had the power to be able to stop this at any time. He could have stopped the cross. Yet he suffered, and he suffered a lot. Now some of you probably know where I'm going with this, so here we go. And, and you just need to know, again, the context from which I'm coming from. Uh, I don't like suffering either. I am with you on that. I, I don't look for suffering, and I admit I'm the first person to try to figure out a way around the suffering, out of the suffering, over the suffering, under the suffering. I just want to eliminate suffering as well. Even when I know my suffering is my own stinking fault, I just, I'm, I'm looking for the shortest, quickest, most um, uh, least painful way out of that suffering. So I get it. I'm not some sort of a suffering saint or a suffering martyr or a suffering fool. But the obvious conclusion, I think, especially for those of us who claim to know Jesus and, and, and believe in the Bible, the obvious conclusion is that if Jesus suffered, then what in the world makes us think that we aren't going to suffer? We have guilt and we have no power to stop the suffering. And, and listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, you lost a bet and somebody dragged you to church, whatever it is, you're here for whatever reason and you're not a Christian, you don't buy the Jesus thing, you don't believe the Bible, you think the church is a little bit good, all of that stuff, I want you to know that I understand your perspective if you think that there shouldn't be any suffering. I get that. The first 27 years of my life, I lived in that reality. I was one of those people who couldn't understand why a loving God would create a world where there's, where there's suffering and why this has happened and why can't we eliminate it and somebody's got to do something about this. I get that. I understand that. It makes perfect sense. You, you don't have, just like I didn't, you don't have a worldview that understands and explains suffering the way Scripture can explain it. But if you are a Christian and you think this way, if you're a Christian, uh, I would entertain the idea that it's not just whiny and misguided to think that you'll never suffer, but it's a little bit arrogant even. Jesus suffered, but you're not going to have to suffer? This is one of those situations where uh, I, I tend to say, you know, too many of us embrace a theology of Barney rather than a theology of the Bible. The simple fact is you are not more special than than Jesus. Now, now keep hanging with me. Here's the good news. If you are a Christian, you do have a guaranteed expectation that the worst kind of suffering you could ever experience will be eliminated. Because you're a Christian. Because of Jesus. Because you are in Christ. By the way, I love that little two-word idiom, in Christ. Paul, in his writings, uses that 176 times to talk about those people 
who have uh, been uh, recreated by God through his mercy, as Peter says in, first, uh, in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, those who have been caused to be born again by God, you are now in Christ. You have the resurrected Christ living in you, the Holy Spirit living in you. And because we are in Christ, we've been rescued for, from suffering for eternity in a place called hell. And yes, I believe in the biblical doctrine of hell, and, and, and Redemption Church also believes in the biblical doctrine of hell. Not gladly, not triumphantly, but because it's part of Scripture, and that's what Jesus and Scripture teaches. So that suffering, the worst suffering, the longest suffering, eternal suffering, has been eliminated for those of us who are in Christ. Jesus traded his righteousness for our unrighteousness, our sinfulness at the cross, as Peter says in verse 18, thus delivering us from the eternal consequence of our sin. And that's good news. That is the gospel, and that is to be celebrated. But we must also understand we are not there yet. We're still living here in this in this world, called by God to live as his people in a broken and corrupt and sinful place and to offer spiritual, I would even suggest sometimes painful sacrifices pleasing to him through Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, because we are going into the world with what the world would see as an upside-down version of what good is, we're going to get into trouble. We're going to get pushed back. We're going to be called names. We're going to be slandered. We're going to be lied about. We're going to be uh, persecuted and oppressed, and, and, and there's going to be trouble. There's going to be there are going to be problems. And so we're going to suffer not only as a result of living in this dark and corrupt world where it's messed up and there's wickedness, but we're also going to suffer even when we are doing good just like Jesus did. Jesus was doing good on the cross. Jesus was doing good with his life and his ministry, and he suffered for it. And so that introduces us not only to today's passage, but also what we'll work through in the next two, three, or four weeks. So let's get to the text, this, this five-verse paragraph. Uh, one, one scholar, Chang, says this about this paragraph. This is said to be the most difficult paragraph in the letter and one of the most difficult in the New Testament. Entire books have been written to deal with the language, theology, sources, and controversies related to the ideas contained in this paragraph. And so we have our work cut out for us today. But I tell you, if I were to name this paragraph, I would name it this. The victory of Jesus. This paragraph is appropriately understood as the total, ultimate, supreme, preeminent victory of Christ. And one of the other things that we should recognize is that although we have trouble um, interpreting and understanding a couple of the things in this passage, when Peter wrote this to his people in his churches, they likely did not have trouble. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And so we strive and we work hard to study it and come up with uh, what we think is the closest approximation of what Peter was trying to say here. But let's get started with the first half of this paragraph, verses 18 through 20. And right away, just in reading these, par th this, these, these three verses, you should see why, why it could be a little bit of a struggle. He says that it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, let me just pause there real quick and mention this. In the Greek, the, the righteous is singular. So what he's saying is the righteous one suffered and died for the unrighteous, and that word unrighteous is plural, for all the unrighteous ones. So the one died for the many, the one suffered for the many, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. That's where it seems like Peter goes a little bit off the rails, starts chasing rabbits, and we'll have to deal with that. But the first thing we need to remember about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is what verse 18 says, that this happened once. And it was once for all, and that that marked the end of any sacrifice payment or system that was somehow ever created in order to be able to rid us of our guilt for sin and grant us the position before God of righteous, of forgiven, of clean, of free, and perfect. Jesus even said when he was on the cross, one of the last things he said before he died was, it is finished. And what he was talking about was this idea that, that, 
that we no longer have to go to God and place a lamb or a goat or a bull or a bird on an altar and kill it in order to have our sins atoned for. We don't have to do that anymore. That also includes the idea that we don't have to do anything like penance or, or, or paying for our sins. We don't have to beat ourselves up or, 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 or try to work our way to God. All of that is done, so let it go. Christ did all of the work for us. We just need to submit to Him and live in Him. And so the righteous one, the sinless one, the guiltless one, He suffered and died for all of us all of us who are unrighteous, all the ones who don't have a guiltless and sinless nature. And verse 18 says that Jesus did this specifically to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God, to, to bring us into relationship with God and, and give us this internal, eternal inheritance for us. And if you've been following the thread of the letter, you know that this is one of the important points of the letter, that we have this magnificent inheritance for us as a result of the gospel that is being kept in heaven for us. And that is eternity in heaven, eternity in the new Jerusalem. So one of the things that we should capture from this letter is that it highlights the temporary nature of our life here on earth, that it's nothing but a wisp of air, a vapor, compared to eternity and the fact that we're going to be with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. Let me ask you a hypothetical question. Think of the greatest inheritance scenario that could ever happen to you in your life here on earth. The greatest inheritance scenario that could ever happen to you here, so you, I want you to think of wills and estates and things like that. Have you ever heard of what some people have called very generically the Uncle Bob inheritance? It's better than winning the lottery because you had no idea it's coming. You don't buy a ticket to the Uncle Bob inheritance. Here's the Uncle Bob inheritance. It's when you get a call from some mysterious lawyer only to find out that some obscure relative of yours that you either know about or don't know about has passed away and they have chosen to remember you in their will to the tune of like millions. Wouldn't you like to get that call? I have a friend it happened to. He's, he's, he's a strong acquaintance and probably a distant friend, but he's a friend nevertheless, and I know this story. It happened to him a little over 10 years ago. Guy was running a small business, grinding it out every single week, facing his monthly nut, trying to make sure his, his revenue covered his expense. You small business owners, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Just the grind, 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 making sure that you have a little bit more left at the end of the month than than what you put into it. So he's got that kind of a life going on, and he has this aunt or aunt. Which is it, y'all? Aunt or aunt? Uh-huh, okay. So he has this aunt-aunt in the Midwest, and he's 48 years old, and he gets the call. And, and this, this aunt that he had in the Midwest was kind of a lonely, lost, and forgotten member of their family. Uh, years and years ago, uh, I'd say now 35 to 40 years ago, because we're more than 10 years past this event, uh, he and his family, his wife and his children, were in the Midwest, and, and they happened to drive through her town, and so they stopped and visited her for a couple of days and, and you know, honored her by doing that. And then, and then he spent um, the last 30 or so years of her life, every Christmas and every birthday of hers, he would send her a greeting card. And he did this faithfully every year. He never heard back from her, but he would just go ahead and, and, and send this. Well, she died, and, and he got the call from the attorney. And he inherited a little over $3 million. Now, what he found out was that his aunt, even though she lived fairly humbly and nobody knew that she really had any money, she didn't behave like she had any money, they didn't think she had much of an income, what she was was one of those what people would call a financial steady plotter. What she had, she was frugal with. She saved it wisely. She invested it wisely. Now, this lady was essentially ignored by the rest of her family. And in fact, his one visit by his family and his two cards every year ended up becoming, uh, making him the most faithful and loyal family member that she actually had. Now, this is not a story that tells you that you should be sending out cards to all of your distant relatives, okay? You're missing the point, if, although that wouldn't be a bad idea, but you're missing the point if you think that's the big point. So my buddy goes back for the funeral. Not a lot of people there. 
and he, and he got to go inside of, uh, of, of her house, and, and a small little house, and he walks in, and in, in, the, in the kitchen, there's a little dining nook or a dining area, and on the wall in that dining area was every one of these cards that he had sent her over the last 30 years. So there's, you know, uh, 58, 60 cards up there. So he had this Uncle Bob or Aunt Lucy, whatever her name was, inheritance. By the way, my friend is, is retired now, and he's quite happy. And for those of us who do know him and understand what Romans 13 says about rejoicing with those who rejoice, that's been a challenge for us and a wonderful challenge that God has given us. Now, here's what we need to understand. This righteous one for the unrighteous one's sacrificial inheritance that Jesus gave us, it's hard to understand, but we need to grasp this. It's better than any inheritance that we could come across here. Way better than any inheritance like that that we could come across here. And I know some of you are thinking, oh yeah, just let me try that other inheritance and I'll show you. No, 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 no. This is much, much better. Our inheritance is eternity with Jesus in the new Jerusalem and a part of that inheritance is also an understanding of what our purpose and calling in life here on earth is. We have meaning and purpose in Christ here. And if you do buy into this idea that that, that that worldly inheritance would be better than the inheritance that Peter tells, about, tells us about in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, then you are guilty of what C.S. Lewis says, you are guilty of aiming too low. He says we aim too low when we seek to revel in and, and, and pleasure ourselves in the world rather than in God. That if we really wanted to aim high and we really wanted to experience freedom, we would understand that our inheritance is in him and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we know that. And so now we go to the, to the more confusing verse in this passage. Peter says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because these spirits did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which just a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water. Now, most of the time when people read this, this verse, this, these couple of verses here, we either race by them and figure, well, I don't get that, I'll just get to something else that I can understand, or we stop and ask questions. Like, who are these spirits? Where is this prison? What did Jesus proclaim? And when did this happen? The great reformer Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, said this. This is a strange text, a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. So if Martin Luther struggled with it, you know that we're going to struggle with it as well. And there's been several answers posited for the solution of what this means. Uh, here are the top three summary style. Number one, in his spirit... Jesus proclaimed through Noah to the people of Noah's day that judgment and sin was coming and the people needed to repent or be washed away, die. The second possible solution is that those in prison are fallen angels from Noah's day or demons to whom Jesus went and proclaimed his victory. And, and, and I don't know, that, that solution kind of conjures in my mind sort of this, this vision of a, of a sort of a trash-talking Jesus. I am victorious, you are not. Or number three, this is a very popular one, though most scholars refuse to accept it, uh, between his death and resurrection. So uh, uh, during those three days after he died and before he rose again, Jesus descended into hell to preach to the spirits who were in hell, possibly to give them one last chance to repent. Now, the last half of that solution is thoroughly inconsistent with the rest of the Bible, and so very few people opt for option number three, the idea of preaching in hell. But I will tell you there is, no pun intended, spirited scholarly debate about the other two. And even at the preaching collective that the redemption pastors all go to each week, when we looked at this passage, uh, all of the pastors were split on which one of the first two solutions were actually the correct one. A couple of guys even said maybe it's a combination of, of the two. Now, the reason I go through all of that is because I'm going to pick one, but I want you to know that I pick it in, in utter humility, knowing 
that it's possible that even though I've done as much homework as I possibly can on this, it may not necessarily be the right one, but I think it is. It's the most traditional and classic um, uh, translation or understanding. And so I, I tilt very strongly towards option number one, which is that Jesus proclaimed in his spirit through Noah to those in Noah's day. So let me talk a little bit about that. Uh, if you'll recall the story from Noah, and if you don't, that's fine. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Uh, this is in the book of Genesis, the first book of Bible. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but God essentially goes to Noah and says, I've had it with the corruption and sin on earth. Uh, I, want, I want you to build an ark so that I can save you and your families because I find you guys righteous, but the rest will be washed away and I'm going to kind of start over. But it's interesting because between the time that God went and told this to Noah and the time the flood actually came was 120 years. And so they had a, the people on earth had 120 years to repent of their sin and corruption. And, and, and we don't know for sure how long it took Noah necessarily to build the ark, but given its size and the fact that he did not have power tools, most scholars uh, claim that it probably took him approximately 100 years to build this ark. And that is not an exaggeration. They be, it was decades and decades and decades. It took a long time for him to build this ark. By the way, this is the one reason why I find the movie Evan Almighty completely implausible. I was fine with that movie up until it only took him like two months to build that ark. And I said, I can't believe any of this stuff now. Anyway... Now, you got to know that as, as, as Noah's building this and going through this process for decade after decade after decade, that, that there was ridicule sent his way. In fact, some people speculate that, that this, this ark building project became a destination like you and I might go to for entertainment, kind of like Waikiki Beach or, or Disney World or something. And people would come and, and they'd set up lawn chairs and they would watch Noah build the ark. It was this big uh, attraction. But if you think about it, Noah's ark building was a proclamation of impending judgment to the rest of the world. And very often, God preaches through his people through action and not necessarily words. Think about the prophet Ezekiel, who is known for uh, acting out and dramatizing his, some of his procla proclamations. So uh, we believe that this is probably what happened, but, but no one repented. So they became the spirits who formally disobeyed, as Peter writes. And those people who had this message proclaimed to them but refused to repent are now, are now those spirits who are in prison. Prison using, being used metaphorically. But what's really important about Peter using this as an illustration for the point he's making is this. Three things. First of all, he wants God's people to know that they will and do suffer for doing good. And the reason is because Jesus suffered for doing good, and so did Noah suffer for doing good. Noah was doing what God called him to do, and he suffered for it. Second, I want you to understand that God was unhappy 120 years prior to his act of judgment, prior to the flood, yet he still waited. And waited and waited and waited. So Peter mentions this because he wants to remind us that God is a patient and forgiving God. It, it is interesting to me how many people talk about how unfair God is for whatever the reason. And believe me, people can come up with all kinds of reasons for why God is unfair. But it's rarely acknowledged that God is actually amazingly patient. And the scriptures show this time and time again. Certainly God is more patient than you and I are. I, I just speak autobiographically. God is more patient than I am when somebody offends me. I want justice and judgment right away. I don't want to wait around for that. And that leads to the third reason Peter tells us this. At some point, there will be justice and judgment. God is patient, but he's not infinitely patient. And so at some point, justice will reign. Any idea that anyone will slip by God is just pure fantasy. And I know this troubles some people. And again, I want to acknowledge that I get that. That's a legitimate troubling to wrestle with, I think. But at some point, there has to be justice. We know this. And we all want justice, and there should be justice. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, God tells us that justice is His through Jesus Christ. But what we also have to remember is that mercy and grace are also His through Jesus Christ as well. Now, I know that what I'm about to say, sometimes people walk up to me after I say it and say, yeah, that's a little bit cheap, but 
I also know it's true, and I also know it gets people thinking, and so I'm going to say it. The vast majority of us believe strongly both in grace and justice. We believe in both grace and justice, and we believe strongly in them. But the problem is, is that we believe in grace for us and justice for everyone else. That's part of what, what is known as the self-serving bias. We all have excuses for ourselves, but we can't find near one excuse for anybody else behaving the way they do. Well, Peter uses this example to explain that both mercy and justice come from God through his son Jesus, and both are perfectly executed by Jesus. And that, Peter argues, is one good reason why we can endure when we are suffering, that, that we can be patient when we're in the midst of, of tribulation. Jesus suffered for doing good. We can patiently endure suffering even when we're doing good. And so now let's read those last two verses. And wrap up with that, still a little bit of troubling stuff in here. We're going to talk a little bit about baptism. Troubling meaning it's, it's a little bit hard to grasp exactly what's being said here, but we'll figure it out. So Peter ends verse 20 with eight persons were brought safely through the water. And then verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter here in these two verses is making symbolic connection between uh, the water of the flood and the waters of baptism. So let's work a little bit on this. Now, water has an interesting biblical history, I think. Uh, we can look at water in the Bible and see that it's both threatening and cleansing, uh, for instance, the Red Sea threatened the Jews during their exodus from Egypt, um, but, but then God split those waters and the Jews were able to walk through. But also the waters are seen as cleansing in some of the stories. Later on in the Old Testament, there's that great story of Naaman, who, an important man who had leprosy all over his body, and Elijah went to him and through a messenger said, go and dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be cleansed. And after pouting about it for a while, Naaman finally went and did it and he was cleansed, so Water's threatening but cleansing. Water also healed some people but saved others. Again, we see this with the waters uh, of Noah's flood, the same waters that raised the ark and saved um, Noah's family are the same waters that, that killed many, many other people. The, the same waters also that were held back and the Jews were able to walk through during the exodus from Egypt, those same waters then came crashing down on the, on the army of Egypt as they tried to follow the Jews um, out of Egypt. And so it does both of those things. We also know that there are accounts of droughts and famines and heavy rainstorms in the Bible. Just think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And then, of course, Jesus had his stuff with water. He, he walked on water, and, and he also turned water into wine. And so I bring all of this up to help us understand that, that Peter is speaking here mostly of the water in a symbolic way. And that's important given the fact that, that Peter says that baptism now saves you. It sounds like he's saying that if you want to be saved and avoid hell, just be baptized. The problem is that we need to read everything in the Bible in context. And so we have to read on. And he says right after baptism now saves you, he says not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, if you read everything, I think you can sense what Peter is getting at. Our salvation is through and by Jesus and his resurrection victory over Satan, sin, and death. Our salvation is not through water, but rather through the resurrection victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death. He says, listen, water can clean you up on the outside, that's true, but that's not necessarily what saves you. Water can do some really good things for you, and, and removing dirt on the outside of you is not where your righteousness actually resides, but rather your inner being, the soul, the conscious, that's where God makes you righteous. And you can look at it though. This way, using the very example that, that Peter gives us, he says that the waters that brought Noah safely through the flood, they rescued Noah, yes, but that was temporarily. We need to understand that Noah was eventually going to die physically, and as a, as a result, he, needed, he still needed righteous spiritual standing before God. And so it's the same thing with us. 
Baptism is really important to Christ's followers, but not because it saves us. Rather, it's important because baptism testifies to and symbolizes that we are saved by the resurrection. It's the outward sign of the inward reality that we now have in our lives in Christ. And let me say, some of you have recently come to Christ. You've, uh, God has caused you to be born again, and you have yet to be baptized. And I would strongly encourage you that you get baptized at our next baptism service. Not because it's going to save you, but because it is a testimony of the glory of God in your lives. The fact that He caused you to be born again and has brought you out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. Give Him the glory and the testimony of the fact that He's done that marvelous work in you. And that marvelous work is not done by the water, but by the resurrection and victory of Jesus. And Peter nails down that very point with his last verse. He says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That is a verse of utter victory. And I want you to see this. This whole paragraph starts with victory, middle victory, end victory. He starts with Jesus' victory on our behalf through Jesus' called and purposeful path, which was death and suffering. That was the, 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 the beginning of the victory. And then Peter gives us the example of Jesus proclaiming victory over Satan, sin, and death, even in the time of Noah, to those who did not believe and obey. And then he tells us that baptism, while it is very important, it doesn't save us, but it is because of the testimony and the reality of the resurrected Christ's victory in our lives. That's what saves us. And then he ends with the victorious Christ in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God with all things in subjection to him. There is no power, no authority, no scheme that is not in subjection to him. And so this paragraph is all about the victory of Jesus. And the reason that's important is because when we are suffering, we need to know that we are also already victorious through Jesus Christ and his triumph who lives in us. This is our living hope when we are struggling against the trials we face. Our living hope is Jesus Christ, the victor. It is finished and our inheritance is guaranteed. And that's what that language about being at the right hand of God with all powers and authorities in subjection to him, that's what that's all about. What does it mean to be at the right hand? Well, it means that you have the power to act as if you were in the center chair yourself. It means that you have status and privilege. It means that you don't suffer anymore. And it means ultimate authority. Jesus teaches and judges ultimately and correctly. And it means that there is not a single angel, authority, or power that is not in subjection to Jesus. I, I want you to, li- don't turn there, just listen to this. This is how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1. This is a magnificent paragraph in Colossians. It's verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent, victorious, supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ. So Peter tells us, Paul tells us, Jesus is supreme, Jesus is the victor. Those of us who know him, we have that victory in our lives, and and, and that's our hope when we suffer. Instead of avoiding the topic of suffering, and then being mad when suffering inevitably happens to us, we're going to confront the topic of suffering and gain a better understanding of it so that we can deal with it in a purposeful way through the gospel of Christ in our lives. In fact, I want to close today by making this one point. Here it is. All of us are going to suffer. Uh, one, one person, one author says it this way. If you're not suffering now, you've either just come out of suffering or you're getting ready to go into some suffering. So there's this cycle of suffering in our lives, and many of us know that. 
So here's the point. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your suffering. I've talked a lot about a guy named Jerry Sitzer who's written a number of books, but uh, his classic book is known as A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. Told you a bit of his story. In 1991, he was in a a tragic car accident that he did not cause where his mother, his wife, and his four-year-old daughter were, were killed. And in 1995, he wrote this book, which is now a classic. And in this book, he talks about how suffering is universal to the human condition. We all suffer. But he also talks about how suffering is also unique. Each of us suffer in our own ways, in, in, according to our own history, our own positionality in life, and, and our own experience. And it's because of that universal and unique aspect of suffering that you and I need to be in community with each other so we can share our lives together, so we can see connecting points of how our suffering relates to each other so that we don't waste our suffering. And this is why he wrote this book and then the follow-up book 10 years later, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayers, that's the title of it. That's why he wrote these books, because he didn't want to waste his suffering. He wanted to give some insight to people who are suffering from somebody who has suffered Deeply and tragically. John Piper is another one who would say, don't waste your suffering. In fact, those of you who are familiar with John Piper would say, hey, I've heard that before somewhere. It's true because he wrote an essay that was all about don't waste your suffering. John Piper ended up with cancer. And rather than going into a woe is me mode, he decided that he was not going to waste the suffering of his cancer. And he, and he writes about how you need to understand that suffering brings new perspective to life and new perspective to our understanding of how things are because it, it introduces elements into our life that we've never had to deal before. So our, our, our perspective is expanded tremendously. He also talks about how suffering is a very good teacher for us in our lives. It's not a teacher that we want or that we run to, but inevitably that becomes a good teacher in our lives. He also talks about how suffering is good to help us with this idea of biblical sympathy or interpathy. Again, one more little passage. This idea of interpathy is expressed by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction who comforts us in our suffering, who comforts us in our trials and in our tribulation uh, so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. In other words, we suffer, we have affliction, God comes and comforts us, and now he sends us out in the midst of that affliction and suffering to go and comfort others with the same comfort that God has given us. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort as well. So so this suffering is good for perspective. It's a good teacher. It's good for biblical sympathy. It's also a good witness. It brings glory to God as we suffer well with the gospel of Jesus Christ and as people point to that and say, what do they have that we don't have? Some of the most magnificent testimonies of the, of the grace and goodness of God have come as I've sat with people dying of cancer. And they have pointed to the glory of God in their lives in the midst of that tragic suffering. And finally, suffering points us to the ultimate. It points us to the cross in Jesus. It's the beginning and the end of suffering, especially for those of us that know him. It points to the fact that Christ suffered once for us. We're going to suffer as well, but it's good, and it'll it'll bring us good, and it'll ultimately bring glory to God. Let me pray. Sean and Josh are going to come and lead us in our time of response. Holy God, we, we thank you for the fact that you continue to challenge us, and we know that um, in our flesh we would like things to be easy, simple, and comfortable, but we also know that the reality is, is that we're going we're gonna to struggle and we're going to have challenges. And so it's good to know that we have the gospel of your son in our lives, the power of the resurrected Christ. And so it's by him that we come to you and pray this. We ask for his courage. We ask for his strength. We ask for his power as we deal with this life. God, and we ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat>